Great, thank you. Let's probably not touch anything else for the rest of the day. <laughs> Good morning, Rosemount Bible Church, and welcome, warm welcome to all of you, whether this is your first time or your 10,000th time here. We welcome you in the name of the Lord, and it's good to be together. I like to think sometimes about uh, the experiences that we enjoy, and how did that ever, you know, come to begin? Um, think about uh, penicillin and how someone discovered penicillin by playing around with mold, and how did they, like, how does that happen? How does that first moment happen where you think, I'm going to scrape something here and do something with it, or... Uh, my family loves NHL hockey, and they love to watch the playoffs. And at what point did people play hockey and decide, yeah, we should get together and form some kind of league, and we should do this cross-country? Uh, this morning, we're going to explore the same thing. As we, If you've been paying attention this morning, we've talked a lot about the church already, how we come together as believers, and what do we do? We sing uh, praises to the Lord. We pray together and remind ourselves about him. We bear our burdens together. We lift up prayers on one another's behalf. But how did that all start? This morning, we conclude uh, our second chapter in the book of Acts, uh, written by the Apostle Luke. And uh, through these two chapters so far, we get, a, we get a sense of how this first community of believers came together. And although it's a story of the people who made up that first community of believers, that first church, it's really a story about the power of God coming into the world and encountering us, partnering us, this time through the person of his Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is a book that spotlights the person and the power and the works of God the Holy Spirit. These are works which he generously does through ordinary, imperfect people like you and me. Our passage today at the end of uh, Acts chapter 2 will describe what life was like for the first community of Christian believers. Not quite yet the church as we know it today, but also not quite the same group of Jewish um, community that existed in the first century at that time. It's something altogether new that God the Holy Spirit is doing with people. There's a, a British theologian I enjoy named uh, Charles Kingsley Barrett, C.K. Barrett. During his time in the 20th century, he was one of the foremost authorities on the book of Acts. And he described the events in our passage as the irresistible progress of the word of God. My brothers have named this passage in the outline for the book of Acts as believers altogether, and that is exactly what happens. But an alternative title could be the irresistible progress of the word of God. I love the English language. I love this quote. Every time that I read it, it gets my heart stirring because God is doing something exciting through his people. Today, we get to continue witnessing the irresistible progress of the word of God through this new community of Jesus followers filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. So we'll get started cracking open our Bibles in Acts chapter 4. Starting at verse 42, I'll be reading from the New International Version. Here Luke writes that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what we see in these verses that I just read are what biblical scholars typically refer to as a summary description. It's a literary device used by writers such as Luke for a few editorial purposes. And I'll just rattle off two or three of these. One purpose in creating this summary passage is to conclude events leading up to this point. Now, uh, the, the book of Acts is unique in a way in that it's, it's a very kind of journalistic reporting on events as they happen. Uh, Luke writes event after event after event in, in fairly strong detail. Uh, and only with verse 41 does he kind of ease off of that journalist-like reporting of events to sit back and allow his readers to take in all that has happened up to this point since Acts chapter 1, verse 1. A second reason for this summary passage is to emphasize the outcome of events leading up to this point. Now, I've already mentioned that we've often uh, associate God's powerful intervention in human history through God the Father in the Old Testament, uh, through uh, Jesus, God the Son, in the Gospels, but here we read about the tremendous significance of God the Holy Spirit and all the work that he does transforming people, transforming the church and transforming the world in the book of Acts. In under a century, we have to realize that this very small group of uh, poor, largely uneducated uh, Jews in a very small part of the world managed to spread the gospel of Jesus throughout the Middle East. Despite violent political oppression, and opposition. And it all started with Jesus' promise at the beginning of Acts to wait for the gift of Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So this summary passage highlights the effects of the Holy Spirit and the outcome of his filling of his people there in the first century. The last thing that this summary passage does is that it indicates the passage of time. Now, we can trace the day of Pentecost back to 50 days from the time of Passover. That is just history point to point. But it's not clear at all that the events of Acts chapter 3 that we'll hear about next Sunday, that that, that that happens immediately after these events. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 begins with the, with the phrase, one day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer. So as serious Bible scholars, we need to appreciate for a second and take into account that the, while the vast majority of the first two chapters of the book of Acts are chronological, event after event after event, this passage that we read is a breather, after which there's an indeterminate amount of time that happens afterwards. That's all. Uh, we'll also see that this passage is a summary of what, what life would have been like in general for the believers in the first century community. It's not a reporting of one specific day, what life was like on one day at one time. It's just a characterization in general. And so we're going to be paying attention today at that characterization. We're going to look at, uh, in general, what were the activities of the first Christians? What did they do? We're going to look at what life was like for them from day to day. 
And we're also going to look at how did society around them, the neighbors and, and the, the, the people in and around Jerusalem, how did they perceive these first believers? So at the very outset, we learn of four activities in the early church that they participated in. And they presented us into two pairings. There's the teaching and the fellowship, and there's the breaking of bread and prayers. But before we even dive into that, I want to focus on what, what was the character of the early Christians like? And that's to say, what, what's the manner in which they carried out these different activities? In this case, that manner is described as devotion, steadfastness, constant and continuous. And that verb, devotion, is grammatically applied to each of the four activities. We mustn't read it as though the disciples uh, and the believers at the time devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also did fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer to a lesser degree. That verb, devotion, is equally applied to all the activities. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And they were devoted to prayer. This term devotion will be used multiple times to describe the, the characteristics, the comportement of the uh, different church communities throughout the New Testament. It will be used to describe the believers in Acts, in Romans, in Ephesians, and Colossians, and on and on and on. Starting in verse 42, then we learn that the first significant activity of the early Christians was their devotion to the apostles' teaching. So who were the apostles? In some Christian traditions, the apostles are people who are venerated. They are respected. They are even prayed to. And portraits are lifted up to them in, in their homage. I want to suggest that um, as much as I love my brothers and, Christ, uh, and sisters of that tradition, that there's a bit of a misinterpretation or misguidance there. The apostles were ordinary people used by an extraordinary God through extraordinary circumstances. What they accomplished was remarkable, but it is God behind the scenes filling them and blessing them through all these opportunities who we should venerate, who we should worship and not the people themselves. God used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Uh, at the time of the writing of Acts, these were almost exclusively, the apostles were almost exclusively the men whom Jesus chose, the, the men whom Jesus personally taught, and the, the men to whom Jesus personally ministered. They experienced life physically, daily, with Jesus. The only exception to this would have been Joseph, called Barsabbas, also called Justice. I believe that Christian Moras taught us a little bit about him a few weeks ago. Now, uh, he wasn't personally called by Jesus um, in the same way that the other apostles would, but he experienced ministry with Jesus and the other apostles um, for a vast amount of time, starting with uh, John's baptism and going all the way to Jesus' ascension into heaven. And you could read about him earlier in the, the book of Acts. Now, uh, with the exception of some scholarly um, speculation about Luke, it's reasonable to conclude also that the apostles were largely Jewish, culturally Jewish, and their faith was Jewish. Um, 
most of the converts that were, um, that were in that community at the time, in the early book of Acts, would have been converts from Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, which uh, they would have largely been Jewish pilgrims coming to a Jewish festival in the Jewish city of uh, Jerusalem. And the ministry of the first apostles would have been a Jewish ministry to a Jewish people of a Jewish faith. It's important for us to understand that context because it would be perfect, perfectly logical then to understand that the nature of the apostolic preaching would have been Jewish. And what do I mean by that? All we have to do is look to Peter's apostolic preaching in the verses that precede today's passage earlier in chapter 2 to understand the context in which the truth about Jesus would have been taught by Jewish apostles to a Jewish audience. Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2 outlined very clearly that the prophets wrote very specifically about a Jewish Messiah that they were anticipating. They would have, uh, Peter would have also taught that Jesus' life and death and resurrection also very clearly fulfills those prophecies that would have been written hundreds, sometimes thousand years earlier. Peter would have also preached that God the Father demonstrated physically, sometimes even audibly, that Jesus was this Messiah the Jews were anticipating. He authenticated, if you will, Jesus' messiahship. And finally, Peter preached that everyone in the hearing of this message must repent of their sin and believe in Jesus as this fulfilled Messiah that they were waiting. And so this is the template of the kind of teaching that the apostles would have given. When we hear that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is the kind of teaching we're talking about. I'd also like to suggest as we attend this church or other churches from time to time, that in general, this should be the character of the type of teaching we hear. Not necessarily every Sunday, but generally we want to hear Jesus preached in this way. This would be a true teaching of who Jesus is. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just a wise man. He is God's promised Savior. He is God and he has died for our sins to live forever with him in God's kingdom. This message is primarily directed to the church, to people who have already come to that conclusion. Some of you may not have come to that conclusion yet, and that's okay for today. But as, as you continue to listen through this sermon, be mindful that the church of God, this community of believers that I'm talking about, is for you too. Be mindful that this invitation that Jesus extends to all of us to be part of his family is for you. The second significant activity of the Christian church was their devotion to fellowship. The Greek word that's used for fellowship is koinonia. Um, the second chapter of Acts contains multiple forms of that word koinonia, including uh, koinon, which is a word that generally means common or shared, as well as the grouping of words hapantakoina, which means having all things in common. I'll again refer to the theologian C.K. Barrett, who explained in his commentary of the book of Acts that these koinon words in Greek uh, come normally to mean to share with someone in something. Above and beyond 
the nature of the relationship itself uh, or to give someone a share in something that you have. Yet this sharing was clearly a practical expression of the new relationship experienced together through a common faith in Christ. That relationship brought a certain sense of responsibility to one another. The way that Dave, for example, talked about uh, lifting up one another in prayer. We have a responsibility, a spiritual responsibility to one another, sometimes a physical responsibility to one another. Barrett goes on to write that it may be best, therefore, to give koinonia fellowship its widest interpretation in this verse, including within its scope contributions, table fellowship, eating, we're going to talk about that soon, and the general friendship and unity which characterize this community. So for us today, um, May 21st, I think, at RBC, that means that the fellowship word here is kind of inseparable from all the other activities that we're talking about, the breaking of bread, the the prayers, the sharing of resources, and uh, the praising of God. There's no fellowship without these activities. And without these activities, the fellowship kind of doesn't exist. It's kind of like that, uh, that, that famous chicken and egg problem. Uh, fellowship begins with all these activities, and these activities result in fellowship. My only exhortation here to us as a church family is to point out that you can't really fellowship by yourself. You can't be a blessing to others or be blessed by others when there are no others. And so I ask you to consider today on Sunday when you leave this place and you enjoy the nice weather outside, who, is, who are your others? Who are the people that you would consider those that God has kind of put in front of you right now, put placed in your orbit around you that are the people that you are most likely to be praying with, to be eating with, to be praising God with, how close are they to you? How close are you to them? How much time out of your life, out of that big pie that you divvy up your time into, is spent being with these others? And consider how you spend that time. The third significant activity of the early Christian church was their devotion to the breaking of bread. The immediate meaning here, confirmed very soon in verse 46, is very simple, that it refers to physically eating meals together as a family. There is a, a famous old Jewish prayer that is used to invoke the beginning of a big family meal or a meal shared among friends and family that begins with the physical breaking of bread and taking of a little bit of wine. In English, it's translated to, Blessed are you, our Lord, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. Since Luke was present at this Passover meal, with Jesus and the other apostles, it's entirely possible that this fellowship meal included some early form of Holy Communion by partaking in the bread and wine to remember Jesus' death and resurrection. But that's not primarily what this passage is referring to. It's definitely talking about sharing a meal. That meal may have begun with this type of prayer. It may have begun with remembering of the Lord, but Scripture is just not perfectly crystal clear on that practice until the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth sometime later. What is important about this fellowship meal is that it doesn't take place on its own. It doesn't take place in a vacuum. Um, it's practiced with the teaching. It's practiced with the fellowship. It's practiced with the prayers and the worship. 
It's not a, a meal that's simply shared for convenience because everybody's hungry. Uh, it's a vehicle for intimacy with one another. Because we don't just sit and eat silently. When we eat as a group of believers, we talk about our lives. We ask how each other is doing. That will probably move us on to prayer. It might move us into glorifying God for the news that's shared. We get closer. It's also, uh, the meal is a sign of acceptance because we don't typically sit down and, and share a meal and share our lives with people whom we would not accept relationally. So it's a sign of acceptance of the people that we sit together and eat with. Even if they're people that might not normally be in our social circles. And I'd extend that thought one step further, particularly in the first century, in that it might be that meal, fellowship meal, might have even been a social equalizer, by which I mean it would bring together people that would not typically mingle in society. Jew and Gentile, for example, who have a common faith in Christ, eating a meal together and becoming a new community in this way. The rich and poor, also coming together and sharing a meal in a way that they might not have otherwise done. In the case of breaking the bread in the context of private homes during the first century, even male and female sitting together at a table and enjoying a meal that way. Very different. At RBC, Kelly and I have been so blessed to be part of our small group uh, with a couple of other families here, and uh, we started meeting virtually on Zoom during the, the COVID-19 years. Uh, and we still meet by Zoom to this day. But what I've really come to appreciate is that we have been meeting together more physically, but we do that primarily for the purpose of getting together and eating. And we bring our children with us when we do that too. And the children are playing and doing activities and we're eating with one another and getting to know each other. Even at the time I was writing this sermon, these very words at that moment in time, I got a text on my phone. And the text said, hey everyone, Morton's here, just wondering, is anybody open to getting together this Saturday night? And so we did, we, we got together late last night and, uh, and we had a great time together. It's, it's an experience that I love very much because I, I clearly love food, no problem there, but I love the people in my small group. I love getting closer to them and getting to know them more and even as I see their faces looking back at me now, it's... Um, it's a very special experience that uh, I'm grateful to God for, I praise him for, and it's an experience that I want all of us to be able to enjoy with one another because that's what God intends for us to experience. The fourth and final significant activity of the early church is their devotion to prayer. Specifically, the original Greek text translates to the devotion to the prayers. It sounds specific, and it sounds plural. The noun in its plural form suggests that the early church, along with the apostles, shared in reciting particular prayers, which would not have been uncommon at all in Jewish practice. On this point, uh, Scottish theologian F.F. F. Bruce wrote that the community's prayers would follow Jewish models, but their content would be enriched because of the Christ event. Another saying that I think is just so cool, the Christ event. Imagine, for example, this early group of Jewish believers praying together the words of Psalm 103, 
Praise the Lord, my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Far from being stuffy and repetitive liturgical prayers, these prayers must have been so exciting when the early group of apostles and their flock experienced firsthand the fulfillment of these prayers through Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? Regardless of what they prayed, this was a community that was drawn together for the purpose of prayer. They would be intent on praying together, and they would be dependent on the Lord for prayer. And so all of this is Luke's picture that he paints in general of what the first Christian community would have been like, a brand new community, a community characterized by devotion to receiving teaching together, devotion to fellowship devotion to breaking of bread, and devotion to praying together. That's what they did. What was everyday life like for these Christians? Verse 44 of Acts chapter 2 says that all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So the emphasis that we read in these passages is on togetherness, the togetherness that this community experienced. Besides the core activities we already learned about, there's an emphasis on the continuous physical proximity to one another. It's very important to, the, to us that the early believers here were not like my small group that meets every two weeks. Uh, they're not like... RBC that meets together once a week on a Sunday. Scripture says that they met every day. They were together. And not for a second do I think that this getting together every day was a formally scheduled, organized gathering. I don't think anyone had a clipboard anywhere saying, you're going to be there on Sunday, you're going to be there tomorrow. No, I think that the Holy Spirit drew these people together, brought them with one another, and fostered a deep desire in their hearts at the time to gather daily, not unlike the way that we would gather embers in a fireplace, the cold pieces of the glowing pieces of coal, you gather them together so that together they would they would warm up again and turn into a roaring fire once again. I believe that's what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first century group of believers. So this new community that was meeting together daily, practicing these core activities we read about, and having everything in common with one another, they took on a new practice, a particular practice. The Bible says that they, as diverse they were in their social status and their wealth and prosperity, that they made sure that everyone among them had everything that they had in, in need. And if they didn't have what they needed, people would start selling off their belongings. They would start selling off property. Can you imagine? Would Steve McCarg sell his TV if 
I got sick and we needed to uh, depend on other sources of income until I got better. It's a nice, no, he says no. <laughs> what about the hot tub? <laughs> it's, a, it's a remarkable practice that uh, it's not just the spiritual lifting each other up. It's a physical lifting each other up. And how could we know if the community needed anything physical? We have to get together and break bread together and know each other for that to happen. Otherwise, we're oblivious to each other's needs. So this is a community that needed to be close. In, in doing so, through the power of the Holy Spirit and a shared faith in Jesus as the res resurrected Messiah, this diverse group of people who otherwise might not have very much in common ended up having everything in common. And I wonder if, if you can relate with that experience today. I wonder if there are people in this, in this physical church that you have gotten to know, whose life you've gotten to appreciate, that you would probably, you might say, I'd never get to know someone like this outside of the church, in my neighborhood or in my workplace. There's great diversity in the family of God uh, that we have to experience and also to celebrate. In this verse, we looked at what, the, uh, what else the community did. We looked at what they were like, and we'll take a, a moment to look at where they did it. Scripture says that the apostles and the other believers met every day in the temple courts, what theologians to believe Solomon's colonnade. The temple that the colonnade was in was Herod's temple, the second temple, an absolutely massive structure of marble and gold. I tried to get the best image I could find I even got ChatGBT to like generate something altogether new. This is a picture I found. All right. The temple structure was massive. The temple itself is the, the building that you see in the middle of it. The colonnade is what you see along the walls, the big columns all over. It's kind of an open space. It's roofed in. There are columns there. This whole building could accommodate hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. Hundreds of thousands. Look at the little people on the picture. They're just like little ants. Solomon's colonnade was a colonnade because the area was essentially wide open space covered by a massive roof supported by huge columns. Even the colonnade itself, this area that you see, thank you, in the image there, that could still, as, as it stretched all along the courtyard, it can hold 30,000 to 50,000 people easy. And what's important about this detail is that the believers in this new community, yes, they shared a private life together. They met in homes. There were too many to, to meet um, in one place at one time unless it was a public space. So they met in homes. They also met in public. The apostles' teaching took place in homes. It also took place in the public where others can hear, others who may not have yet heard or who heard a version of it. Now they got to hear it from the source. They taught and prayed and worshipped and fellowshiped in their homes. They taught every day in these giant open spaces about Jesus. These would have been public prayers that would have been uttered, glorifying God the Father and thanking him for his son Jesus' death on the cross. I'm sure you can imagine the kind of attention that this new teaching could have drawn in a public space. Could have been surprised, could have been outraged. The cynic in me would assume that that this kind of teaching would have been poorly received, that others who would disagree with this message would be shocked, 
it may even get physical. But our final verses in the passage today tell us that the Holy Spirit is still very much active in nurturing and blessing this new community as it takes shape. Let's take a look. In, in verse 43, which we skipped earlier, verse 43 reads that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So along with the public gatherings and teachings in which the early church partook, the apostles performed miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't be surprised because back at Pentecost, earlier in, in Acts chapter 2, in his famous sermon, the Apostle Peter quoted the Old Testament prophet Joel, who wrote, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Dave, I'm still waiting to find out if I'm young or old, depending on whether I get visions or dreams. Joel goes on to write, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. That's what was happening here. Just like the Lord Jesus, whose teaching about the kingdom of God would have been accompanied by all kinds of healings and miracles, so too would the apostles receive and use that same power of God. Next week, here at Rosemount Bible Church, we're going to hear about the first of those miracles as we, as we learn about a healing that the Apostle Peter would have performed in Acts chapter 3. So how did people respond to this? Scripture said that everyone was filled with awe. The Greek word here that translates to awe is phobos, from what we get the, the English word phobia or fear. These days in common English... Spoken English, everything is awesome. If you have kids, they may have seen the Lego movie, the theme song to that movie is, everything is awesome. The movie that I saw was awesome. The ice cream that my son makes is awesome. It's pretty good. Um, the jeans that I bought, I got them at an awesome price. But the word awesome here, in its true meaning, for something to be truly awesome, you would have to feel as small and insignificant and overpowered as an ant might be. The way that you would feel in the presence of God, in all his awesomeness. This awe, this phobos that people experienced in the New Testament was always in the presence of spiritual manifestation, the presence of God. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah experienced Phobos when an angel of the Lord appeared to him. That's why the angels always say, don't be afraid. Because the first, the first reaction that humans have to their presence is fear. Phobos. Um, when Jesus brought back to life a widow's dead son, all the people who saw that miracle happen were filled with Phobos. In a few weeks, we'll hear from Nicozuelo about Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5. These two characters lied, the sneak preview, they lied about having given all of the proceeds from a sale to the church. They said they did, but they didn't. And they were struck dead on the spot, the two of them. People were filled with phobos at that event. Does that mean that people were terrified of the apostles? No. Not exactly. I like how the Bible scholar Daryl Bach puts it. He writes that God had been at work through Jesus. Now that work continues through the apostles, indicating that God supports 
this new community as well. The apostles' activity causes all around to take careful, respectful, even nervous notice of what God is doing through them, what, what is happening inside the community. Luke continues describing how the people around the community regarded them in verse 47. He writes that they ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So we conclude our passage today by observing how, in, in addition to the awe with which people regarded this new community of believers, people also looked favorably on them as well. The passage here says that as God, the Holy Spirit, filled this community and blessed them and held them together through its very early stages, that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. All the people. As we imagine this, these early believers numbering in the thousands, meeting in homes, homes that have neighbors, and also in the, the big public spaces to teach the good news about Jesus, all who witnessed them found favor with them. Is it possible to live a life dedicated to Jesus and to find favor with the world? Someone said no. Jesus teaches that sometimes the world is going to hate you because they hate him. And sometimes that is true, yes. Other times the world might hate you not because of how you're living like Jesus, but because of how you're not living like Jesus. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, including myself, can be jerks from time to time. And the world hates jerks no matter what faith they have. In our context today, however, the favor of the people is immediately followed by the statement that the, that the number of those being saved grew daily. But who grew their number? Was it the apostles? Was it the, the community of believers? No. God added to their number daily. God grew the community. God inspired all. God blessed them. God helped them find favor with all the people. So as we work out our salvation from day to day, as individuals and as the church, let's be sure that our speech and our actions are consistent with the speech and actions of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us in our ministry, in our lives, to bless the fruit of his work and to add to our number himself. If the world is going to hate us, let it be because of how much we resemble Jesus, not because of how we don't resemble Jesus. So there you have it. There's five short verses telling us what the first Christian community did, telling us what they were like, and how the world perceived them. But so what? Did we spend the last 30 minutes, sorry Dave, 30 minutes together uh, sitting through a history lesson, or is there something that we can take away and apply to our lives today? Hopefully I was already able to sprinkle a couple little bits of, of application into our lives through this teaching, but my two personal takeaways from this study that I did for my own benefit, um, how I found application in my life, uh, are twofold. My first takeaway is that, that, well, in both cases, there's this French saying, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Plus ça change, plus les choses sont pareilles. 
The same Holy Spirit that shepherds the apostles and the early community of believers is the same Holy Spirit that shepherds our elders and our community of believers here at Rosemount Bible Church today. He is the same. He is God. He moves and acts exactly the way that he means to, and we have the same exact access to him that the early church did. We must not let the Holy Spirit stay locked onto two-dimensional pieces of paper. He's alive. He is so much more than the pages of Scripture. In some way that interweaves the physical world and the spiritual world in a way that I can barely understand, the Bible says that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you if you are a believer in Christ. The Bible says that he continuously teaches and reminds you of everything that Jesus has said and done. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, that he is a source of supernatural wisdom and power in your life, that he gives spiritual gifts to you to benefit the body of believers, that you will bear spiritual fruit, evidencing your Christ-likeness, and so much more. So God, the Holy Spirit, is living and active in your life and my life, in the life of Rosemount Bible Church, and in the global community of believers stretching back from these very first believers in Acts chapter 1 all the way to today. We are united in that through the Holy Spirit. He is just as alive as the Lord Jesus is alive. And woe to any of us who makes the mistake of forgetting that or minimizing that. My second takeaway is meant to be an encouragement to us regarding the imperfect nature of the church, even the one represented in this first community of believers we read about today. I say the church is imperfect because it's made up of people like the early believers and you and me, and I'm sorry to say we are all very imperfect indeed. While Luke's summary this morning describes a highly idealized version of the people of God, and while the Holy Spirit clearly did bless this gathering of early believers in a way that fostered very rapid growth in Jerusalem, the whole truth is always found in the details. Details which we will be reading about for the next several weeks as we continue going through the book of Acts this summer. We'll learn, for example, how the growing community of faith will be beset by greed and falsehoods in Acts chapter 5. We'll read about the persecution that they experienced through Acts 5 and onwards. We'll read about confusion among the leadership regarding Saul's conversion in Acts 9. We'll read about doctrinal challenges regarding God's favor to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and regarding circumcision of believers in Acts 15. We'll, we'll read about disagreements between different church leaders like Paul and Bar Barnabas. The list of problems goes on. My point is not to disparage the early church or make them sound bad. It's just to normalize it. For those of us who have been part of the church for a long time, particularly if we've really given a lot of our time and gotten involved in leadership, challenges occur. Friction occurs. It's normal. It's human. We love each other and we love the Lord, but we disagree. We disagree on the style of music that we play during worship. We'll disagree about how long the speaker is taking. We'll disagree on how much uh, emphasis we place 
too much emphasis on, on missions or charity or that we spend not enough emphasis on missions or charity. You name it and we can disagree about it. But we're just people, imperfect people like the imperfect people that the Holy Spirit chose and used in the first century. The church, ha my point is that the church hasn't fallen from some grace, some lofty grace of an ideal that existed in the first century. We're the same. We're a group of broken sinners. We're all redeemed by the grace of God, called together to be his body, filled with his Holy Spirit. So be encouraged, Rosemount Bible Church. When you find yourselves impatient with another brother or sister, that is an opportunity to practice Christ-like patience with one another. When you find yourselves quick to anger and say something regrettable, that's just an opportunity to practice Christ-like forgiveness and repentance. When you're provoked by something offensive or uncomfortable to you, there's an opportunity for Christ-like self-control. The church is like God's little laboratory for us to practice Christian grace with one another again and again and again. While we may be imperfect creations, Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for the way that you have generously intervened in human life, where we stumble and make mistakes time and time again. You have intervened in human history. God the Father, you have intervened in human history. Jesus, God the Son, you have intervened in human history. And God the Holy Spirit, you have intervened in human history to our great benefit. Thank you for the gift of your church. Thank you for gathering us together to glorify you. Would you help us, Lord God, to do, as, to do so as individuals and as a body of believers? And Lord God, if there's anyone here today who still isn't quite sure if they have become a part of your family here, if they have not given their lives to you in a way that, they, that brings about certainty, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help this person give their lives to you, that they would be able to open their heart to you in prayer, very simply to accept the truth that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that you promised, the Savior of the world and the Savior of our hearts. Would you, Holy Spirit, give this person the assurance that in this very moment as they pray that truth, that they are in fact part of your family now. And Lord, would you help such an individual share that good news with someone close to them um, that they 